You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to the Low Countries Radio, a collaboration between Republic of Amsterdam Radio and the Low Countries website. Celebrating Flemish and Dutch history and culture and its impact on the world today. Let's face it, humans are strange. And from one such strange human to another, I ask that you humor me a moment or two of musing. Have you ever wondered about how traditions or customs come into existence? It seems to me that we come up with ideas about things like gestures and celebrations and symbols, and as strange as these ideas may be objectively, when enough people start agreeing on them, they become customs, traditions. The way we greet each other, for example, varies a lot between different societies. Actions like shaking hands, bowing, exchanging air kisses and waving are among the many different gestures that people have customarily used to greet each other. But unless you are used to these actions, they must seem pretty strange. During the 2020 pandemic, when touching and being physically close to each other became contrary to good manners, we have seen how quickly we are able to change and adapt develop new and different gestures to accommodate new limitations. Prior to 2020, if you offered somebody an elbow-to-elbow greeting, people would have perhaps thought you to be a little strange. But with the new reality of the COVID world, the elbow bump of affection came into popular existence and quickly spread. When this happened at first, in my experience anyway, It was often bashfully accompanied by a particular sense of ridiculousness. But that has waned and the elbow is becoming custom. Imagine if the elbow bump survives into the future. Imagine if in 300 years, the tapping of elbows to say hello is as deeply ingrained in our societies as the handshake has been up until now. It will not seem ridiculous at all. Because as odd as a custom may be, if enough people do it for long enough, it becomes normal, a part of a society's identity, with no sense of discomfort or oddity at all. Belgium and the Netherlands have a lot of quirky customs and rituals that range and differ across the regions. If you are not familiar with them, they are often interesting, funny, and sometimes somewhat bizarre. It is likely that they all started out as oddities, but enough people kept doing them for long enough that they have now become culturally important. As a result, in the low countries, you might see things like backpacks hanging on flagpoles outside of a house, or giant blow-up dolls sitting on somebody's front lawn. You might see an extended family meeting for a birthday celebration where everyone will be kissing and congratulating all the family members, then they will all sit in a circle together 
and drink coffee. These are amongst many of the strange ways that the Flemish and Dutch interact with each other and the world around them. In this episode, we are going to delve into some of the unique and peculiar customs, social norms and rituals of the Low Countries, and see the different ways in which these traditions have evolved over time. And since this is a topic with an almost endless amount of possible directions we could take it, we are going to try to follow the trajectory of traditions a typical life might encounter, from the moment of birth, through the milestones of life, into death. So, let's get started. But as is tradition, first we will play a little bit of music. The arrival of a new child into the world is a moment steeped in tradition and is marked by unique customs throughout the Low Countries, which have varied greatly throughout time. These rituals begin even before the birth itself, when the announcement is first made to family and friends that one is expecting a child. In the 21st century, many of us are used to seeing over-the-top pronouncements of pregnancy via social media, like wittily composed photographs of a couple holding a grainy black and white ultrasound picture while the man drinks something alcoholic and the woman looks on enviously. Sometimes people have a gender reveal party where fireworks will explode in blue or pink smoke, hopefully not setting off any wildfires in the process. But although such announcements seem thoroughly modern, we can find interesting roots to these when we look back into the homes of rich, fashionable families who lived in the elite social circles of the 17th century Low Countries. Pregnancy and childbirth are still, without a doubt, some of the most dangerous times in a woman's life, and this was the case even more so before the advent of modern medicine and proper sanitation. The risk of a premature death in childbirth was ever-present, as well as the very real danger of miscarriage. In addition to all of this, the fact that talking about sex was taboo in the extremely religious Christian societies of the Low Countries in the 17th century, the issue of how and when one should tell their friends and acquaintances about an impending birth was complicated, to say the least. Most women in the earliest stages of pregnancy would simply hide it, but at a certain point it would become too obvious, after which she would stay at home until after the birth. One way that a noble woman or a woman in high social standing would tiptoe around all of this was to host a Durzicht, which translates into English as door sight. This was basically an old-fashioned baby shower. When the woman was around seven months pregnant, close family members and female friends would be invited around to the home and a special cup called a Hansje in de Kelder, which means... Hansel in the cellar would be placed on a table. A Hansia in the Kelder is basically like a very wide drinking vessel, which could be made out of silver, porcelain, pottery, or glass. To imagine what it looks like, just picture one of those really wide champagne glasses with a flat bottom, but in the center there is a raised hemisphere with a little hole in the top of it. When everybody was gathered together, a special type of liqueur was poured into the main part of the glass. As the liquid went in, a miniature baby-shaped figurine, which had been hidden inside the raised round center part, 
would float up with it and suddenly reveal itself to the audience as it popped out of the hole on the top. Everybody would then say a toast to Hansel in the cellar and take a sip out of the cup, all fully aware of the fact that this meant a baby would be coming soon, but without ever having to actually talk about the explicit intimacies involved in baby making. Having a hansia in the kelder became an expression which is basically synonymous to the English saying of a bun in the oven. In other parts of the Low Countries, the expression was altered somewhat. In Brabant, one might talk about maker in its cup breaker, a girl in the pantry, whereas in Flanders, they might drink to het kinderke in its spindaker. Both the name and the design of the hansia in de Kelder were full of references towards pregnancy and childbirth, but they were also loaded with a more symbolic sense of one joining a society. The figurine of the baby was initially safely stored inside the container, hidden from view, before popping out into full sight as everybody was gathered around. The kelder, or cellar, in the name is thus a clear reference to the mother's womb, but the name Hansje took things a little further. As well as being the diminutive form of a rather common name, Hans, this also alluded to another word, Hens, also Hans, which in Old Dutch slash German could mean something like associate or partner or fellow member. It is from this that the word Hansa, like the Hanseatic League of North German trading cities, is derived, as well as the expression Alle Hens on Deck, all hands on deck. If a new city was joining the Hanseatic League, they would be welcomed into the confederation at a special ceremony, which would often include everybody sharing a drink from a similarly shaped ornate glass called a Hensbaker. These Hensbakers, however, would not unfortunately include a surprise baby popping out of the top of them. Hensbakers were also used at meetings of Dutch water control boards, which were and still are responsible for the maintenance of dikes and dams where participants would drink from the shared cup as a symbol of their cooperation, all working together against the rising water for the common good. So keeping that in mind, we can see how the Hansje in de Gelder was a more intimate, familial form of such a ceremony. The baby was thus being welcomed into the family in much the same way that people would join other exclusive clubs, where cooperation towards a mutual benefit was expected. Although this tradition has almost completely disappeared and been forgotten about, you can still buy the liqueur, which is rather sweet and made out of oranges, lemons, cinnamon, cardamom, and apricot or cherry juice. The 30% alcohol content, however, might mean that the mother-to-be will want to skip out on that toast. To Hansia Indikelder. After the successful birth of a child, it was normal for there to be a big celebration, of course, where people from all across the neighborhood would come to see the new mother and child on what is called a krambazuk, or a maternity visit. These became popular scenes for genre paintings and works by people like Jan Steen and Richard Bruckenberg show chaotic depictions of people young and old crammed into a house all to see a new baby. The adults, mostly women, are usually shown eating, drinking, and being merry, and there are children running around excitedly, while the new mother, no doubt exhausted, still lies in bed, probably wishing that they would all leave. 
As you might expect, this celebration also called for some alcohol. We are talking about the Low Countries. During a maternity visit, adults would drink Candale, a warm drink made out of a white berry wine, egg yolks, a cinnamon stick, cloves, lemon peel, and sugar. This was about 17% alcohol. The making of Candale was necessary, according to superstition, to ward off evil spirits from the mother and the child. The father would be in charge of preparing it and would have to wear a special cloak and cap and use different sized cinnamon sticks to mix it up, depending on whether the child was a boy or a girl. In some towns, there were strict regulations about these parties. In Zvola, from the 15th century, it was mandated that there were not to be more than 24 women present, 12 from each side of the family, with a government officer being sent down to count them. The men, presumably, were keeping socially distant. The Candale celebrations would go on for about six weeks after the birth of a child. Due to the obligation the father was under to host such events, he would not be able to work during that time, and it was not uncommon for a family to go bankrupt as a result. The drinking of Candale still continues to this day in some circles. After the birth of the current king, Willem Alexander, in 1967, his father, Prince Klaus, served Candale to the then Prime Minister of the Netherlands and to other leading members of the government. Back to the 17th and 18th centuries, children at the Kram Bazook would be presented with a small snack known as a Kindermann stick. This was basically like a piece of bread with sugar on it, or a small ball of fried dough with lots of sugar on it. The children would be told that the newly born baby had brought this to them as a gift and as you can imagine, this made those children somewhat predisposed to feel positive towards their new brother or sister or neighborhood friend. Who doesn't enjoy a good sugar rush? A poem from the late 18th century, translated into English, goes, Little brother has laid sugar in his diapers. Little brother is sweet. He has little legs and little arms. Give him a kiss and he'll give you sugar. This was all likely the precursor to the modern-day Flemish tradition of eating dopesauger after the birth of a child. Originally, these were almonds dipped in honey, which the parents would give as gifts to people who would come to visit after the birth of a child, or at the baptism, or at any other appropriate moment. Today, dopesauger is usually made from chocolate, shaped like a bean, which is covered in a layer of sugar to make a pink blue, white, or any other color of the rainbow, really. Older people in Flanders might call them kinnikas cuck, or cuckabonches, which means kitty poo, or poo beans. Traditionally, they were hidden inside the cloth, which the baby had been wrapped in on the day of their baptism, so that when the cloth was removed, the beans would fall out of its diaper like poo. Little kids would then happily run around collecting the new baby's little sugary gifts, Little brother has laid sugar in his diapers, indeed. In the Netherlands, this tradition is somewhat different, because instead of eating poo beans, they enjoy beschout met meisjes, which translates into English as rusk with little mice. Meisjes are basically sugar-coated aniseeds, which are eaten on a special biscuit called a beschout. This is a really dry type of bread, kind of like rusk, which has been covered in butter. It used to be believed that the anise plant had rejuvenative powers for new mothers, which would help with the production of breast milk and to help shrink their womb back to its normal size. As a result, new mothers would eat aniseed, or, you'll probably never guess, drink a special liqueur made from it. 
Nobody really knows for sure, but it's believed that the tradition of eating sugar-covered aniseeds on buttered bread began in the 18th century, but more well-to-do families would eat it on biscuit instead. Since biscuit comes from the Zahnstreich region north of Amsterdam, they like to claim biscuit met maceus as their own. In 1860, maceus began to be made by Cornelis de Ruyter in a factory in Barn. De Ruyter's original maceus came in two colours, white and pink, which would be mixed together. After the birth of Princess Beatrix in 1938, de Ruyter made special orange-coloured maceus, and it was off the back of the popularity of this that eating biscuit met maceus at the birth of a child started to become a truly national tradition. Nowadays, whenever a new prince or princess is born, orange maceus can be found in supermarkets so that everyone can eat them. They're also sold around King's Day or during a football World Cup if the Netherlands are in it, or the European Cup also if the Netherlands are in it, or any of the other times the Dutch people feel their usually somewhat suppressed national pride come welling to the surface. It was only in 1994 that de Ruyter began to make maceus in another colour this time blue. That's right, for 134 years people had been eating pink maceus to celebrate the birth of both boys and girls. How woke of them! But in the mid-1990s, people decided to get very binary with the genders of their celebratory snacks and have since served blue maceus on biscuit at the birth of a son. It's intriguing to see that this tradition, despite having cultural roots which stretch deep back into history, is actually only a relatively recent modern phenomenon. As we have seen, many of the traditions in the Low Countries surrounding the birth of a child revolved around the home, and through life, the home continues to play an important role in other traditions, in both daily routines and in the celebrating of major milestones. Indeed, the centrality of the home to the Dutch cultural life is attested to by the fact that historians such as Witold Rybczynski and Simon Sharma have claimed that the very concept of home, as we understand it in the Western world today, developed in the Low Countries during the 17th century. Whilst the idea of the Dutch origin of domesticity has, of course, been disputed and argued about by various academics, it remains a fact that it is the foundation of the Dutch tradition of celebrating Gezelligheid. Gezelligheid not only is a very difficult word for non-Dutch speakers to say properly, but it also doesn't perfectly translate into English. It's kind of like a mix of coziness, quaintness, and conviviality. It's the warm, fuzzy feeling you get when it's cold and wet outside, but you're snugly ensconced on your couch with a blanket, the candles are burning, food on the stove, and in the enjoyable company of close friends or family. The word gezellich could be used to describe, say, an evening at a romantic restaurant with your partner, or sitting inside an old wooden brown bar drinking beers with your friends, or playing board games at the table with your kids. In pubs, it's not uncommon to see clocks with no numbers, but instead just the text, Gezelligheid kent geen tijd. Gezelligheid doesn't know the time. The suggestion is that, when you're in the company of good people, what time it is doesn't really matter, so you may as well enjoy good times a little bit longer. It's pretty much the peak of Dutch culture, and 
Gezellig is probably the most positive compliment in the Dutch language. You can be sure after the coronavirus lockdowns have ended, the word gezellig will be contentedly uttered, following many a sigh in pubs and restaurants throughout the Low Countries. Ah, gezellig. Perhaps this is also somewhat connected to another tradition, this one particularly prevalent in the Netherlands as opposed to Belgium, which is the non-closing of curtains over the windows of houses. Foreign visitors to the Netherlands who walk down the streets after dark will often remark in amazement about how you can just look straight into the large windows these houses have and see the people inside just sitting on their couch watching TV. Or you can just stand there and watch them preparing dinner while their children do their homework. Having lived in a typical Amsterdam house for years, where I can look out of my window and look straight into at least 12 different apartments on both the front and back sides of the building, let me just be honest and say that I've seen quite a lot more than kids doing homework in my neighbors' homes before. All of these houses did have curtains which sporadically might be closed, but on the whole, in the Netherlands, curtains are generally left open, leaving everything in full view. One idea is that this tradition originates from the days when the house still had a dual function. People would both work and live in the one place. And yes, I'm fully aware that we've somehow come full circle and are again living in those days. Hopefully they will soon be gone. From this perspective, since the ground floor area was where the work was carried out, it was always open as a sort of invitation for the public to come in and talk shop. Another theory is that the open curtain stems from the dominant religion of the Dutch Republic, Protestant Calvinism. The idea here is that the curtains were left open to show your neighbours that you were a good, normal, trustworthy Christian. Kind of like saying, nothing to see here, or I've got nothing to hide. If your neighbour had their curtain closed, then perhaps something naughty was happening inside. Anecdotally, I have heard stories about people in the Netherlands whose neighbours called the police on them because their curtains were always closed. Although this idea is intriguing, the irreligiosity of the country today would seem to discredit this as a reason. Probably the most likely explanation is that it's actually a kind of subtle or not so subtle boasting. In a nostalgic song called Het Dorp, or The Village, written in 1965 by Friso Wiegersmaar, but made famous in a 1974 recording by Dutch singer Wim Zonneveld, this idea of the windows being used to show off is heavily referenced. The lyrics translated into English go something like, quote, Look how rich their life is. They're watching TV quiz shows and living in concrete boxes with so much glass that you can see how Mean's couch looks and her dresser with its plastic roses. End quote. Just worth saying, it rhymes in Dutch, which definitely makes it a bit more poetic, but the basic idea is that the curtains are left open as a way of showing everyone else, Look how gezellig my house is. Isn't my life great? Aren't you a little bit jealous? Want ziet hoe rijk het leven is, ze zien de televisiequiz en wonen in betonnen dozen. Met flink veel glas dan kun je zien hoe of het bankstel staat bij min en er dress waar met plastic rozen. Another contrast between the north and south of the Low Countries can be seen in the traditional ways people might deal with the arrival of unexpected visitors on the doorstep. As an immigrant, I learned the hard way that in Holland, it's a very big social faux pas to spontaneously decide to go visit someone should you happen to be in their neighbourhood. 
coming from a country where this is a completely normal and truth be told somewhat celebrated part of the culture felt rather strange to have an awkward conversation with a friend while they stood at their door clearly puzzled by my sudden appearance and equally clearly not wanting to invite me inside. Visitors are expected to make an appointment before coming around and if they don't will almost certainly be turned away sometimes with white lies to soften the blow. So my washing's on. In more rural areas of the Netherlands, however, such as in Noord-Brabant, doing this is less of an issue. A saying goes, Good folk komt achterom, which means good people come inside via the back. Basically what it means is that if the doorbell rings, then clearly someone who doesn't know you is standing at your front door, and that can't be good news. The front door of the house was something to be used perhaps for formal occasions only. If it was a friend who knew you, they wouldn't need such formalities and would probably have just walked in via the back door and yelled out, good folk, to let you know that the person who had just walked into your house was in fact a good person. The stereotype of people from these areas is that they pride themselves on their hospitality and on their house being a Zutter Infall, a place where people are welcome to come around a lot and visit. This is the reason that many cafes and pubs in the low countries can be found with the name Zuta Info. Although this may sound like a remnant from days long ago when life was simpler and safer, people in many smaller towns in the Netherlands and Belgium do actually leave their back doors unlocked. This has in fact become such an issue that police throughout the Netherlands have been carrying out so-called Witte Futschers operations. Witte Futschers means little white feet. During these operations, police or council workers would demonstrate to house owners just how vulnerable they are to a break-in by secretly entering their house, either via the back door or through an open window, but instead of stealing anything, they would simply leave behind a flyer in the shape of a footprint with a message on it saying, quote, This footprint could have been left behind by a burglar. Don't make it easy for people to break into your house. End quote. Over the last few months of 2020, Witte Futschers have been left behind in places such as Breda, Zutphen, Katwijk, and Goes. My colleague's mother-in-law could have benefited from this. Having grown up in the south of the country, her house in Holland was broken into, and when the police asked her, why was the back door unlocked, she answered, well, how else were my family supposed to come inside? Yes, Goedvolk komt achterom, but perhaps this is a tradition which is on its way out. In Flanders, it is rather common for people to enter their friends' houses via the back door as well, but for a completely different reason. This reason is poor urban planning. After the Second World War, there was a need in Flanders, much like the rest of Western Europe, to rebuild and modernise. Things like factories, schools, hospitals, and especially houses had to be built. But in Belgium, there was only a very weak plan from the national government about how this was to be done, and many decisions were left up to various local councils. Belgium has a serious tradition of lack of a strong national government, but that's a story for a whole different podcast. Councils obviously wanted more people living within them, and the easiest and cheapest way to do this was just to build new houses side by side along roads which already existed. This meant that many residential areas were built up following roads which cut through formerly agricultural zones, old farmland. 
the result was so-called lint bebowing or ribbon development, wherein many people live side by side along a big, long road with very few side streets and lots of green space behind them. At the time, this was thought to be a good idea. It didn't require much investment of public capital on building new roads, and the owners of that formerly unused land could make a nice profit subdividing it up, and people would also be able to live in their own home, and the countryside would be right behind your house. Also, people who had grown up in small villages could still live close by to their families and friends instead of needing to move into big apartment buildings in the cities. But it also had various drawbacks. The lack of government planning meant that the Flemish countryside has now become completely fractured, with relatively few large green spaces left remaining. When you drive through it, it's basically just roads with houses built along them everywhere you go. Over 13,000 kilometers of roads in Flanders have lint bebowing, and a quarter of the Flemish population lives in places like that. It's also just really inefficient for things like laying sewers, putting in streetlights, and for public transportation. Lots of people live relatively far away from things like shops, schools, and their workplaces, meaning they have to use their car way more than people who live in cities or who live in the actual countryside. This ends up meaning that people live on busy, noisy roads, often with poor air quality. So what does this have to do with how you visit your friend's house? Well, if you live in a place with lint bebowing, the lack of planning that went into laying down roads, especially the lack of side streets, means that often if you were to follow the road to go visit someone, it could take a long time. Imagine there are two roads running parallel, with houses on either side of them and a small field in between them. If you live in a house on the inside of one of the roads, and your best mate lives behind you on the inside of the other road, if you followed the streets, you'd have to walk in a big square, down your road, find a connecting road between the two, then back towards your friend's house. That takes time. And what's way easier is just to go out your backyard, over the field, and into your friend's backyard. So, there you go. Thanks to poor urban planning, the traditional Flemish way today to visit your friend's house is to ignore the roads and just walk in through their backyards. The last tradition concerning the house which we will talk about here has to do with one of the most significant milestones young people will reach in their life, which is graduating secondary school. If you have ever visited the Netherlands around the middle of June, you might have noticed that at that time, many houses will have Dutch flags proudly flying in front of them. For the usually less than patriotic Dutch culture, this always seems somewhat incongruous. But things get slightly stranger when you take a closer look at the flagpole and realize that hanging proudly on the top of the red, white, and blue tricolor flag is a beat-up, used school bag. This, ladies and gentlemen, is how, in the Netherlands, one announces to the world that they have, in fact, passed their final school exams. One of the more bizarre side stories from the corona crisis has been that people were not sure on which day they could officially celebrate finishing school, meaning they weren't sure exactly when they could hang their flags and school bags outside of the house. But on the 8th of April 2020, Dutch Minister of Education, Ari Slob, which is a great name, put these worries to bed 
by announcing that the 4th of June would be the national moment for graduates. In an official statement, Minister Slob said, quote, How exactly we will celebrate the end of exams depends, of course, on the circumstances on June 4th, but I hope that a lot of flags with school bags can be raised on that day, like the annual tradition, in this unprecedented crisis, with this national moment, I wish them a nice end to their secondary school career. End quote. And so, with this decree, a further crisis was averted, and on that date, school bags were proudly hung out on the flagpoles across the country. The roots of this tradition are unclear. Most articles online are pretty vague, saying that in the 50s, some schools started hanging flags out on graduation day, but this was frowned upon because it wasn't an official government flag flying day. In the post-war years, people were still pretty sensitive about things like that. But by the 1960s, enthusiasm for the Dutch royal family and the establishment had somewhat dried up, and people started hanging bags out on flagpoles to make it clear they weren't flying the flag for any official reason. We searched through newspaper archives, and the oldest reference we could find to this tradition was a short article underneath a photograph of a flag and a bag in the Amsterdam newspaper Het Parole. It is from July 1st, 1965. The article simply says, quote, A resident of Amsterdam's Amstelkade was so delighted that his 17-year-old son had obtained the HBSA diploma that he hung his son's school bag out with the flag. End quote. It seems like there's a fair chance that this image simply went viral and people decided to express their own delight in much the same way. And why not have a bit of fun? As you leave childhood behind and enter into the next phase of life. Growing into old age is also marked by quaint customs and symbols in the Low Countries. I briefly described the typical Dutch birthday party at the beginning of this episode, but when one reaches the milestone of 50, things get a little bit stranger than just sitting in circles with friends and family. For the Dutch, when you reach 50, then it is said that you are either seeing Abraham or seeing Sarah, depending on whether you are male or female, respectively. Seeing Abraham is a reference to a passage in the Bible. But what is quirky about that? Well, nothing. But leave it to the Dutch to take something fairly straightforward and give it an even bigger twist. When somebody you know is turning 50, you can let everybody in the neighborhood know this by buying them a great colorful Abraham or Sarah blow-up doll. This is then placed in the front yard of their house, adorned with balloons, and well-wishers can gravitate towards it with their gifts and cake. Originally, seeing Abraham would warrant a baked loaf in the shape of a male to be given to the person turning 50. These things were, to put it frankly, kind of terrifying to look at. Bread shaped like an old guy with a cane, a beard, a pipe, and of course clogs, but decorated with sugar and marzipan to make them more appealing. Eventually, the bread morphed into a cake. In 1959, during the 50th birthday celebrations of Queen Juliana, the mayor of Hochwald, on behalf of the West Fries Society, presented the queen with an Abraham cake, which she was apparently very taken by. Unfortunately, in another great tradition of the Netherlands, a great gust of wind blew the cake over and smashed it to bits. 
A couple of days later, some bakers in Zvola came to the rescue and gave the queen's husband, Prince Bernard, a new Abraham. This one more than half the size of an actual human. This was to be given to the queen as a replacement. It seems that this was the inspiration behind what has become the current custom, with the first oversized blow-up Abraham or Sarah appearing in the 1990s. For what it's worth, buying a great big blow-up doll probably takes a lot less effort than making and baking a human-shaped cake. Although life may end with death, there are still many traditions and rituals surrounding funerals and the mourning period in both the Netherlands and Belgium. In both countries, the decisions about what will happen to the deceased person's body and where the funeral itself takes place is made by their family, although often that person will have left written instructions behind. Depending on the religious beliefs of the dead person and their family, a funeral might take place in either a church or other religious institution. It could be in a funeral home, though, or at a crematorium. In the Netherlands, cremation was forbidden until 1914, and in Belgium, the first cremation didn't take place until 1933. But according to numbers from the Dutch National Union of Crematoria and the Central Bureau of Statistics, as of 2019, more than two-thirds of Dutch people undergo cremation after death. In Belgium, the number is slightly less, but still, in 2017, around 60% of funerals there ended in cremation, and that number had doubled in 20 years. Like most things in Belgium though, it depends on which part of the country you are in, with Flanders having three times as many cremations compared to Wallonia. After a funeral in the Netherlands, it is common for people to share in that most cherished of all Dutch traditions, the coffee table, where family and close friends will come together to eat cake, drink coffee, and celebrate the life of the person who has passed. In fact, there is so much one could say about traditions surrounding funerals and mourning in the Low Countries, and this episode has already gone on for quite a long time, so suffice it to say that we have barely scratched the surface here, but we did want to touch on one unique and rather new tradition concerning so-called lonely funerals, which has developed in the Netherlands over the last few decades. In 2001, a poet from Groningen named Bart F.M. Droog came up with the idea to write poems for funerals of people which otherwise would have been unattended, and he would go and recite them there. In 2002, a poet in Amsterdam who went by the name Frank Starrick formed a group of fellow poets called the Poul des Dodes, which shared the same aim. Every year in Amsterdam, around 15 to 20 such funerals take place, perhaps because the person who died had been estranged from their family due to mental problems or drug addiction, or maybe they were simply old and had outlived all their family and friends. The Pool des Dodes has since turned into a not-for-profit organisation called Einsame Eitfart, Lonely Funeral, which has the mission to give people who lack friends, family, or a social network a worthy and respectful funeral. This concept has now spread throughout the Low Countries with poets giving recitals at funerals in The Hague, Rotterdam, Utrecht, Nijmegen, Zaanstand, Engelo, Arnhem, Antwerp, and Lofen. After the funeral has taken place, Einsame Eidfart published the poems on their website. As of now, November 2020, 255 of these have been published. 
A collection of them has also been published as a book. Poem number one, written by Sturrock for an unidentified person, translated into English, goes as follows. Quote, Goodbye, stranger. I say goodbye on the road to the final country, where everyone is welcomed in, where no one needs to know anything about your origin. Farewell, sir, without papers, without identity. What were you looking for? How much did you lose along the way? Who stares through the empty window, waiting for you, nameless man? Wait, while I speak and entrust my empty words to this empty room. I am too late. I never knew you. Not at your weakest, not in your strength. Not in the final country, where you are greeted without name. I don't know which language you spoke. Who, then, loved you? In which rooms did you sleep? Who kissed you goodnight? Who will wear out your shirt? Who will stand in your shoes? Who now takes the road you took? Who is still looking for you? Who remembers from whence you came? Who heard the voice calling out for you to come on home to your final haven, Amsterdam? End quote. At the start of the episode, I mused about how customs become customs, about how weird actions stop being weird if enough people begin to do them. But it is not always as simple as somebody performing some random gesture which then becomes all the rage, such as being so happy with your son's exam results that you proclaim your pride to the world by hanging his bag on a flagpole. Rather, we often absorb the customs we grow up with and then each generation has the opportunity to make its own amendments. Taking a weird human form baked loaf and turning it into a giant blow-up garden puppet or going from aniseed with medicinal purposes for new mothers into sugary gender reveal biscuits, these things did not happen overnight, but they all became customs. Which tells us a few things. Firstly, these things are not set in stone. As fervently as we tend to defend our traditions against changes, what is almost certain is that they will change. And we should celebrate that. As the low countries have long exhibited, when you stick a lot of different people into a small area and give them enough time, they will produce a wide and wacky array of different customs and behaviours. While they may seem odd to an objective view, these are what give colour and life and soul to the societies that engage in them. Furthermore, it tells us that customs and traditions can be literally anything that we decide upon. So... Get your elbows into it. Tap a toe. Do something weird. Create a custom like giving a harumph when you next greet someone. Whatever you do, if it catches on, someday, long in the future, your descendants will defend their glorious tradition with pride. Do you want to know more about Flemish and Dutch history and culture? Visit www.the-low-countries.com. This podcast is made by Republic of Amsterdam Radio. 